All right, here we go, here we go. I should have taken advantage of the lull. That's exactly right. Okay, uh, does, anybody, uh, does anybody know where the sign-in sheet went from last week? Okay. Anybody know where the sign-in sheet went? It went around, and I don't remember. Ex- yeah, I thought. Yeah, I thought I said to someone, give it to Maddie, and then someone said it was going to go to Tammy. Anybody know who that was? Speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> who stole the sign-in sheet? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not. Hey, I think you look at that, Mary. Look at that. Wow! Hey, hey! It's blue ruffled skirt day. That's what I was gonna wear. I know. What are you gonna do? Well, you both wear it very nicely. That's good. Okay, good job. Okay. Uh, well, since nobody's admitting to where the sign-in sheet went, you can come to me afterwards. Okay. Please sign up this sheet. Now we have an artificial form. Please sign that. And please, so everybody can hear, make sure it gets to Maddie Smith, okay? So if it doesn't get there, it's not on me. Because right now, my pay gets docked. What's that? I No, I didn't. I, I uh, No, I didn't. I probably should, but... <laughs> same, the same thing happens at the seminary, so... Uh, Okay, uh, nobody had any better suggestion, and the last thing, Augie! Hey, Augie, you want to come to this? Love you, buddy. (laughs) Uh, Nobody had any better suggestions. The best we had was to go on with 2nd and 3rd John, which actually is a good suggestion, Um, but nobody had a better offer, so let's do that. Flip open to 2nd John. If you, have, uh, if you have the ESV Pew Bible, that should be page 1025. Okay? Anybody else have a page number from like the table Bible, the NIV that's on the table? 1905, okay. That was a good year. Second John. Yep, Second John. Um, you'll see that this is quite a bit shorter. Second and Third John um, are only one chapter. Um, and you may remember that these are all letters, but in the New Testament, letters are also what? Sermons. Sermons, exactly. So for those of you who think that I should preach longer, I give you this as a reason not to. Um, this was awfully short. You know, if I could preach a sermon that's only 13 verses long, that'd be great. But anyways, it's like he got it all out with First uh, John, so now we go to Second John, which is 13 verses, and you go to Third John, which, you know, maybe... Maybe somebody complained, so he wrote two more verses. He wrote 15. Um, but let's just start, go to, first, go to 2 John, verse 1, and let's start there and see what we might know. Now, if you had to, and we did this last week, I think, just generally, what's the overall theme of 1 John? Just so we keep that in our heads. As oh, thank, I thought you said good works. I thought, ah, that's interesting. Good works! I'm like, okay. Right? One of these things is not like the other. Thank you. I'll use that one then. Okay. Although I like these fancy ones where you can see the ink go up and down. Lasts two times longer because it has three chambers of ink, it says. I'll use yours, though. So what's the overall theme of First John? Overall theme of First John. Just give me a couple words that come to mind as you read it, or as you read it. Yeah, so... Um, Good. Uh, yeah, good. Now, I'm trying to think if somebody asked you, hey, give me ten words or less. That's, I want to read First John. What's it all about? What would you say to them? Walking in the light is good. Oh, yeah, good. So, um, um, shorter version of John, right? Um, and if you had to summarize that, you would say, Walk in the light. Okay? And you remember he does play off light and darkness. Anything else that sort of comes to mind? Uh, Yeah, fellowship, which is always uh, koinonia. 
which you know from 1 Corinthians, koinonia always has what connotation to it? It's not just like, hey, isn't this great? We're all friends. It's always, uh, it always has a tangible component. And what is that? The Eucharist, exactly. It's always Eucharistic, which means those whom you don't have Eucharistic fellowship with, you can't say you truly have koinonia with. And we'll see in 2 John, there's a point where he says, uh, don't let these folks into your house. And you've got to remember the context of the early church. This was written, you know, it's, people believe John died around 105 A.D., you know, give or take maybe 10 years. This was written not long before that. Um, so in the context of the first into the second century, where did you have church? In the house. So when it says, don't let people into your house, that's not like, hey, don't throw a Super Bowl party. What that means is, don't let people into your house means don't share the Eucharist with them. Okay? It wasn't until, um, you know, the, the beginning of the fourth century that Christianity became legal and suddenly you could have real cathedrals and basilicas and churches. So you'll see this in the letter. Don't invite those people into your house, which is code for don't have the Eucharist with them, which means what John has proposed is two things. Closed communion. Some should be invited and some shouldn't. And what he says is there are some in the family who should no longer be allowed at the altar. What is that a reference to? Yeah, exactly. And we say, isn't that mean? John says, hey, that's normal life, okay? Because if you have people who shouldn't be at the Eucharist and you allow them, then koinonia is broken. Anything else? Yeah, love is love is sort of the overarching theme, um, but for John, love always takes on flesh, and that flesh is the person of Christ, okay? Uh, yes, exactly. You love the incarnation. Although it's very interesting, um, this was actually this was actually supposed to be the text for yesterday's morning Eucharist. Don't love the things of the world, but love Christ. And you know, the vicar had written a sermon we kind of worked through and thought about it and, and said, you know, maybe this isn't the best text right now because um, it's very hard to preach. It's hard to preach when Jesus says or when John says, love the incarnation, love flesh, love my son, you know, Jesus. And then he says, but don't love the world. You have sort of this dichotomy and this thing struggles against each other, which is you're supposed to love something that's utterly tangible and worldly, Jesus, and then you're not supposed to love the world. How do you sort that all out? And that's a live question. So love Christ, don't love the world. You have many Lutherans who say the world is a bad place and the world is not going to go with you when you die and you're never going to have the world again but that very quickly falls into um, the air in the early church of Gnosticism. Which meant what? Very simply, flesh is bad, spirit is good. Which is why, and you've got to read this into the context of the gospel, John writes his gospel against whom? Gnostics. Which is why uh, John 1.14 says the word became flesh. See this? So you've got to figure this out. This takes Christian maturity then to say, how can you love Christ, love the flesh, love humanity, and yet not love the world? How do you play that out in real time? The answer is not the world is bad, the world is evil, the world's not going with you. And the other answer is, or the other bad answer is, um, you can love everything and do anything you want because it doesn't matter. There's some in between there. Anything else in, in 1 John? Yeah. Yeah. 26. Oh, yes. Uh, well, he says it again. Um, he says it again. But you have been anointed. Uh, I'm sorry, ver chapter 2, verse 20. So look up there. But you have been, passive and past tense, anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. And the footnote says, you know everything. Okay? So who is the Holy One? Yes, good. So the Holy One is uh, narrowly, just put an N, the Holy Spirit, and broadly the Trinity. 
right? Because they don't do anything alone. And the anointed there is a reference to what? Baptism. What's the Greek word for anointed there is Christed, which is how you get christened. So actually when we talk about, we, I've had people call me and say, now you do baptisms, not christenings, right? I'm like, well, we do both. But it's a baptism, not a christening, right? Like, well, they're one and the same. Which is why um, at baptism we do actually use oil. Because <laughs> oil is always the mark of being anointed. Okay? So uh, that would be a reference then, Donna, to baptism. So read this again. But you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit and you know everything. What does it mean to know everything? It doesn't mean you know everything like this. It means you have the fullness of truth inside of you. It's faith. Yeah, exactly. Okay? All right. Anything else on 1 John? Yes, good. So um, if, you, if you work this way, if you work with love, well, when we get to 2 John, what you'll see is love is never alone. What's love always connected with? Let's just look at 2 John. I'm not going to tell you because then I don't have anything to say in a couple minutes. Go to 2 John, and then this will... Now, remember, this is just like... So he's written a real long sermon, and now he's writing a shorter sermon, and he's going to try to reiterate what he said in the longer one. So, 2 John, verse 1. To the elder, to the elect lady... Oh, I'm sorry. The elder, to the elect lady and her children. Now, let's just stop right there. Okay? What comes to mind when you hear that? What do you think he means? What does he mean? It sa- yeah, it says the elder. So whoever's writing this is the elder to the elect lady and her children. What do you think he means there? Uh, interesting. I, I didn't think about that. But who said that? We're not going to put that on the radio because then I will receive emails. Uh, yes. Well, here's the thing. The funny thing is, you're actually right, uh, narrowly speaking. Now, why is that? Uh, you remember who this is? This is John, the beloved disciple. Yes. Uh, she is the beginning of the church. That's exactly right. So you have, at the foot of the cross, Jesus says, Ecce mater tuo, behold your mother, right? So... Um, you have two key words here. One is elder, and one is the other is elect lady. Um, and elect lady could be Mary. What else could it be? The church. And you know this from uh, Revelation 12. Well, actually, Revelation 11 into 12. Because Revelation 11, 12, what happens there? Again, John writes this. What happens in Revelation 11 and 12? Do you remember? A sign appeared in the heaven. A woman, remember what it says? Yeah, but before that, clothed with the sun with 12 stars around her head. And it also then says, she's a woman clothed with the sun, 12 stars, and it also then calls her the Ark, meaning the Ark of the Covenant. And you know Mary's always been considered the Ark of the Covenant because what happens in the Ark of the Covenant? What's placed inside? The ten words. And what's placed inside Mary? The Word. See how this works out? And then you even have, the best part is, Mary's visit to Elizabeth, the visitation, takes on almost verbatim the same character as the movement of the Ark in the Old Testament. Remember, people, people have a reaction to the ark when it comes by them. What happens to Elizabeth when she sees Mary? Baby leaves in her womb. So Mary is the ark. So good. Could be Mary. Could be the church. Probably, uh, more broadly speaking, is the church. But you're right, Maddie. Narrowly, it is Mary. Now, who is the elder? John. And the word for elder is the Greek word for pastor. Presbuteros. Okay. So, uh, very literally, it's um, the pastor to the church. Make sense? The pastor to the church. This is his pastoral letter. This is his sermon. 
So the elder to the elect lady and her children. Where does the church beget children? At the font. Um, there's always, well, yeah. Um, the ancient practice at the Easter Vigil is to take the Paschal candle and actually put it into the font. And it's a symbol that now the font has become fertile ground or the font has somehow been impregnated with children. That, of course, in today's world, you do that and you get high school kids around and what happens? They start giggling and laughing and what does that mean? And, but here's the thing, for 2,000 years, the, the Paschal candle was always the sign of Christ and the font was always the sign of the church. The church, as it says at the Vatican's baptismal font, this is holy ground, right? This is, as it says there, this is the place of spirit-soaked fertility. Isn't that great? Spirit-soaked fertility. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now he's used truth there three times, which means it's very important. What does he mean by truth? Yes, first and foremost a reference to Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you have to sort of fill in the gaps there with other names. So you have the pastors to the church, and the church is those who have Christ. And, the, and as it says there, those who abide in Christ, which means there's been movement, which you see in Romans chapter 6. Remember what it says in Romans 6? Do you not know you have been baptized into a preposition of motion. You actually now reside. You used to be out here, and now you're in here. That's exactly what John is saying. You have Christ. Why? Because you abide in Christ and Christ in you. So, Donna, your point about what does anointed mean actually is helpful because this whole, this whole book is about the baptismal life. Grace, which is chorus, sounds like, Eucharist, mercy, and peace, irene. And the word for peace there, irene, means sort of cosmic peace. It doesn't just mean, oh, we're not fighting anymore. It means the world is at peace. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say be with you. He says it will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and Love. So what he says there is, uh, I'm just going to write G, grace, mercy, peace will be with us. How will it be with us? If we have, yeah, uh, now parse that a little bit, Christ, yes, but if we have, what does it say? Truth and love. Yes. Now why do you think he does that? What's interesting is, uh, again, this is part of the this is part of the trouble of being now, you know, almost two thousand years later. We don't know what was going on at the time. One thing we have discovered is, at this time when John writes, there's a major heresy floating around, led by a man named Marcion. And the heresy basically said Jesus was true man, born of man, but not of God. Now, knowing that heresy is floating around, how does this make sense? What does he say in the text? From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. See what he's doing? He's writing against the heresy in his sermon to the people of 2 John. So the heresy is he's not born of God, John can go into a whole discourse on the Holy Spirit if he wants. Why? Remember John 3? Unless you're born of water and the Spirit. He knows about the Holy Spirit. But that's not, the, that's not the problem floating around. The problem is Jesus isn't true God. So he says, God and Jesus Christ, born of the Father. To reinforce the fact that this man named Jesus is both God and man. Now you also see in 2 John, truth and love always go together. And you saw this in 1 John. Now, if you discuss those two things separately, we often go, 
um, down the wrong path. But when you discuss those things together, it might, bring, it might make sense out of both truth and love in and of themselves. So for instance, um, what does it mean that love is always coupled with truth? Say that again. Somebody said something. Yes. Yes, good. So, uh, in fact, if your husband was here, he could help us with this. But it says truth and, the word in Greek for and is chi, which often, big word now, write this down. If you were confirmation kids, I'd say, write this word down, which is called ep-exegetical, which means these two words joined by an and explain each other. So, for instance, John is saying, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth, that is love, in love, that is truth. Make sense? Truth is love, love is truth. And this is helpful for us because oftentimes, love for us is what? An emotion? A feeling? It's very subjective, yes. And you know, truth, if you said something about truth, especially Christ kind of truth, is it subjective or objective? Utterly objective. Doesn't, isn't necess- I don't mean it doesn't care about this, but isn't primarily concerned with what you feel or what you think. It's, yes, it's concerned with what you know. Now, put those two things together, truth that is love, love that is truth. So the greatest kind of truth is to love someone Although, on the other hand, the greatest kind of love is to do what? Speak the truth. In love. And again, but once we say in love, instantly we fall back into, because when you think in love, what do you think? Be nice. Tell them the truth, but don't, (laughs) as people say to me, be honest, but not brutally honest, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and that really isn't the concern of 1 John, and you know it's not the concern, because what did he do at the beginning of that verse? He goes against Marcion. This is a heresy floating around, but I'll tell you the truth. Jesus is God's son. He's telling the truth, and he doesn't pull any punches. That doesn't mean he yelled at his congregation. Oftentimes people, pastors think when you are preaching the law, you need to yell. And the more you yell, the more law there is. Here's the thing. You You can preach the law very calmly and quietly, and it has just the same effect, sometimes worse. My father, for instance is not a yelling man, but I can tell you when he gets upset, all he has to do is give you the look and say, that's not best, and you know instantly you've done something horrible, right? Or as Emma said to me, Daddy, you don't yell, but I can tell it in your eyes. (laughs) Okay, now here's the thing. Yelling or volume does not equate to severity of law. My father, if he yelled, that would not be as bad as if he said, I can't believe you did that, right? That's just the way people operate. And that's here's the thing, that's probably the way John was. Yes. No. Can you help me? Keep going. Because I think I here's the thing, the idea of being real is helpful, so keep going. Yes. It's tangible. Good. So now keep that in mind. I just don't even flip here. I just want to read it to you and let you hear it, okay? First John. Good. First John one. So now we're in 2 John, but 1 John 1, the very first thing he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. That's truth, that's life, that's Jesus. Why? Because you can touch it. You can touch it. So the only, this is part of the trouble is we have to, re, we have to readjust our concept of reality. Reality is not what you determine it to be. And that's part of the problem in a, in a postmodern world, which is reality is what you determine it to be. So if you walk outside and say, you know, um, the sky is falling, at some point you can convince yourself of that, and that becomes reality for you. Reality, the Jesus way, is Christ. So if you can begin to think this way, the only reality, not one of many, not like, Mary's and Josh's and Abby's and now Jesus' reality. There's one reality, and the only reality is Christ. Which means what? His truth and his love 
always match and are always objective. He shows no favoritism. He shows no favoritism, which is why even in the scriptures you have this idea that Jesus says, you know, how I long for you to come under my wings as a mother, you know, mother hen, you know, or, or yes, exactly, to embrace them. Or he says, I desire not the death of the wicked, but that every man should repent and live. He shows no favoritism. And in fact, if you ever were to pinpoint Jesus' favoritism, who does he show more favoritism to? The sinner, the wicked. Um, and this is played out in all sorts of things. I'm, I'm, um, well, yes, I, I was, I was a little surprised that how, uh, uh, let me, let me say this to preface. I'm very happy President Obama did not reveal the pictures because that does nobody any good. The only thing it does is that it proves a point to people who are always going to question. And frankly, I think it's more fun if they continue to question because it gives the world something to talk about. But if you reveal the pictures, what do you do? You, you excite violence, incite violence. You excite the world. And frankly, you show people something they'll never be able to forget. It's like, have you ever seen, I mean, they, you, people talk about this. People are always drawn to a car crash. Why do you get gawkers on the road? Why? Because people want to see, yes, exactly, they want to see something that isn't supposed to happen. And you can just imagine every kid in every school district during computer hour will go to where? Google Osama bin Laden death photos. Every kid in the world will see it. Now, that's not helpful. I'm also not happy that so many churches, and I was saddened to see particularly Lutheran churches, have now planned big celebration services in honor of bin Laden's death. There's a church in this district that is having a service of celebration because a tyrant has been killed. Now, here's the thing. God bless the United States for carrying out, that's raw justice, but it's not something to rejoice over. And why do you know that? You know it because Jesus is truth and love, and these things always match. He desires that every last person come to know him, and he loves every last person as though he were his own child. Make sense? And that's this. what we've done is, and I'm just giving you one example of many. You can find many examples in life, but this is the most prominent. What we've done by celebrating this death is we've separated truth and love. Make sense? We say, this is utter truth. We've killed a tyrant. Great. But we show no love by basically rubbing it in people's faces. That makes sense? That's a separation. We have to, we have to bridge that gap. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, right. Yep. I agree. It was a good it was a smart choice. Yes, right. Good. And so the question is how can you move from chaos to order? Oftentimes in the world, what do we say? If we just love people, the world would be a better place. We can love people so long as our love matches the truth. And sometimes that means saying, listen, the world is chaos and you, friend, are not helping. Or you, friend, are not helping. Or you, friend. Make sense? That's got to match. Got to match. Yes. Yeah? Mm hmm. Uh, I didn't mean to raise any questions about the president, I was just simply giving you an example. Um, which is why I almost didn't say it, but I can never stop, Abby. I can never stop. I was going to hold back. At that point, you're supposed to say, at Josh, we'll talk about it at home. <laughs> no, I believe me, I, this is not a political statement. All I'm saying is this is a live, real-life event that needs to be addressed, and I think, I think he made the right choice. So, um, But truth and love have to, have to match. And it's interesting that he always joins them with an and. He doesn't say truth or love. He says truth and love. Yes. Well, and I think that then they're happy. Yes. But happy yeah. Together. Yeah. Truth yes. 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 Good. Yes. Right. 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 Yeah. And agape is self-sacrificing. This is this is the love of martyrdom. Yeah, it's, it's Christ's love, and not even Christ-like. Christ-like doesn't have even the right, it's not even the right degree. This is Christ himself. It's not eros, I'm attracted to that person. It's not philios, let's be friends. This is true love that's attached to truth is willing to give up its life for its friends and is willing to give up its life for what's right. 
which is determined by truth, which is determined by Christ. That makes sense, Mary? Okay. You're welcome. Verse 4. What time is it? Okay, verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, interesting there, he doesn't say, I rejoice that the children are walking in the truth. He said, I rejoice to hear that. Some. Some. It's very nuanced, but there is a bit of law there. What, what he's also implying is not everyone's doing it. Just as we were commanded by the Father, which means John's not opposed to saying, Jesus said, do this, so you ought to do this. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard, one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Okay? I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another. I wonder what, I brought, I brought some of the stuff from the fathers, and I wonder if anybody says anything about that. Verse 5. Yes, yeah, so here's what, here's what the Venerable Bede says, who's buried in Durham Cathedral. Here John is attacking the heretics who had abandoned the teaching of the apostles and were trying to introduce new doctrines. By doing this, they were breaking the bonds of love. Isn't that interesting? By teaching false doctrine, they were breaking the bonds of love. Why? Because it's false doctrine. It is not truth. Exactly. So when you lie to someone, what are you doing? Breaking the bond of love. Now, come on, Maddie. Be a little more forceful. You're not just breaking the bond of love. You are. If I don't love you, I hate you. Yes. So to tell the truth is to love. To lie is to hate. And what he's saying is these heretics are actually not loving you. They're hating you because they're not telling you the truth. In turn, some of your people, some of your parishioners, are being caught up in that lie. And this is love, verse 6, that we walk according to his commandments. <laughs> now, as a Lutheran, what would you expect there? This is love, that we have faith in Jesus. Right? This is love, that we believe in God the Father who sent his Son. John doesn't say any of that. This is love, that we walk. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The others are here or here, but not both. Exactly. It's utterly subjective. True love is an objective reality which requires action and obedience. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments, his ten words. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So the great deception is to deny what? The incarnation. So the great lie is, the is to deny the incarnation. And you know that incarnation always goes hand in hand with the sacraments. So unfortunately, to deny the incarnation or the sacraments is in some sense the great heresy or the great deception. Okay. I had a Lutheran say to me the other day, I don't believe there are any sacraments in the Bible. That's how he said it to me. I said, wow. Well, that's sad. And uh, at least the good news is we've revealed something about you. What's that? I said, well, you're not a Lutheran. <laughs> I mean, because this is what Lutherans believe, and this is what the scriptures say. And more than that, not only is it heresy, but it's deception. Okay, That's the great lie. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's all the Eucharist is, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, again, this is, this is important for Lutherans to recognize. One, there are many antichrists. It's not just who we always think it is, the guy with the mitre in Rome. And two, antichrists change throughout time. That doesn't mean he's not, but it also doesn't mean he's the only one. Anybody who denies the incarnation and consequently denies the sacraments 
is acting in a manner that is worthy only of the Antichrist. Yes, he is. This is all he said before, right? That's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. But now it's all condensed. Exactly. Exactly. It's like when, when we preach, I once had somebody ask me, why do you always say, well, for the past three weeks we've talked about I said, because people don't always listen very well, and they need to be caught up to speed. This is all he's doing here. But last week I talked to you about this. It was a little long. Now i got to shorten it. Yeah, and people forget. Weeks are busy. Watch yourselves, verse 8, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. <laughs> Again, you don't, you don't expect this from John. So that you may not lose what we have worked for. This is, this is why the scriptures say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It takes work to do this. That's what it says, uh, yeah, or what you have worked for. Yeah, it says here, some manuscripts say you. Um, it looks like, verse 8, yeah, in the, in the Greek text I have, it says what we have worked for. But there's an alternative reading that says what you have worked for. So, everyone who goes on ahead, verse 9, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him partakes or takes part in his wicked works. Now the greeting there is a reference to what? What part of the liturgy is the greeting? The kiss of peace, exactly. So again, now just remember that this is a sermon. So what happens? He's going to end this sermon in just a minute. Amen. What's going to happen next? They're going to collect some cash. They're going to take some bread and wine for the Eucharist. They're going to say some prayers. And then they're going to share the kiss of peace. And then they're going to go to the Eucharist. John is basically saying, if you can understand this correctly, what John is saying is, I'm about to end this sermon. If there's anyone there who doesn't share this teaching, show them the front door. Don't share the kiss of peace and don't give them the Eucharist because it's not good for anybody. Okay? So at the very least, what he's showing you is, Communion is closed, and at the ver and uh, you know at the most, what he's showing you is, and some people don't belong to the church. So uh, house is Eucharist, and greeting is the pox, the kiss of peace. Why? You can't say to someone who has a different teaching, Betty, I would give you a big kiss, but we don't have insurance for that. Peace be with you, right? I can't say that if Betty and I share a different teaching. It's not just about being at odds with people. Partly what the early church wanted to do is they wanted to square up all the, all the you know, fights they had going on. That's part of it. But part of it is you can't share the kiss of peace with somebody who doesn't believe what you believe. Because then it's not truth and love. It's not truth and love. Okay? Yeah. Let me, can, let me ask you a question back. And, and okay, so the question back is, is evangelism properly done inside the divine service or outside the divine service? Outside. So the divine service, and this is partly, this is partly the trouble we got into in, in the Missouri Synod and really across all denominations when you had the church growth movement. Suddenly evangelism was transferred from outside to inside, so everything done in the divine service was done with what in mind? Getting people in, and even more than that, unbelievers. So I can remember growing up at the parish I went to, and it was a complete misread of the culture, but that's another story. But I can remember the pastor always saying on Christmas Eve, big service, I'm not wearing vestments. Really, pastor, why aren't you wearing vestments? Well, because that'll turn off all of our visitors. Now, here's the thing. That's a misread of the culture. What he didn't understand was visitors actually wanted that, so he was out of touch with reality. But besides the point, he catered the divine service not to members, but to non-members. So guess what happened? Two things happened. Tons of visitors on the weekend. Guess what decreased? Member attendance. But guess what happens when you have a lot of visitors attend? They're always going in through the front and out through the back. It's this, it's this 
cycle that goes on and on and on, which means people are there for a week, a month, a year, and then they find another place. Because what? They're never made into disciples. And this was the great revelation of Willow Creek. The pastor there wrote a book, I think called Reveal, actually. And again, you can read it and sort of read the nuanced parts, but his basic point at Willow Creek was, gosh, we've had a lot of people come through our doors, but we didn't make very good disciples. Because what we catered to were visitors and not to our members. So, I mean, here's the thing. You could have 2,000 people at this church on a weekend if you did everything you wanted to cater to unbelievers or to evangel- you know, evangelism. You could do that. Give them free coffee, give them a couple bucks, you know, whatever it may be. You could do that, but the church isn't primarily for the visitor. It's for the member, for the believer. Which is why even in the early church, before it got time for the Eucharist, if you weren't a member, what would they do? The doors, the doors. They'd open the doors. I mean, this is why it's called closed communion. This is exactly what happened. The church, you've seen pictures of this. This was the setup of the church, often like this. What would happen is, here are some big doors. People would be sitting in here for the liturgy. When it came time for the offering and the kiss of peace, you weren't a member, you weren't a believer, you couldn't share the kiss of peace, and you couldn't go to the Eucharist. They'd open up these doors, send all of the visitors out, and close the door behind it. Hence, closed communion. That's where we get it from. It isn't like just Lutherans sat around and said, hey, let's make up some term to kick people out. Closed communion. No, actually it was a very physical, concrete thing. They closed the doors. Exactly. Exactly. Everybody got to hear. But what you didn't get to do was say the Lord's Prayer, say the Creed, share the kiss of peace, and go to the Eucharist. There are certain things reserved for after you were a member. So what they allowed you to hear was Scripture and sermon. And everything else then was for the faithful. That's why uh, in the Didache from you know roughly 90 AD, when it talks about the Eucharist, it says, the holy things, body and blood, for the holy. The holy things for the holy. Meaning, unbelievers had not been baptized yet and so couldn't be considered the same type of holy as a believer. So what do you do in real time? Okay, I've given you all the theoretical stuff. Now what do you do in real time? What would you do if you had non-member family and friends who wanted to come to church with you? Good. <laughs> yeah. The thing you probably don't want to do is say, it's only for believers. <laughs> it's not what you want to do. Because the world today, as much as it may be postmodern, doesn't function like the first century. You can't do certain things. So you can't send people out the same way you could. Um, you can't tell non-believing friends, don't come to church with me. But the other thing is, you shouldn't expect that the church will cater to unbelievers or non-members. Make sense? No, I don't think you were. I was, I was leading you to the logical conclusion, which was sometimes churches react that way, which is, the funny thing is, how do, the, how do churches often treat non-members? You ever go to a church, what do they do if you're not a member? You yeah, you get a sticker, you get a rose. The worst is, would all of our visitors please stand up and tell us where they're from? Now tell me, do you know what, what are people most afraid of? What are, yeah, what are people most afraid of? People are most afraid, they've done this, tests of fear, what are people most afraid of in real life? Being in front of people and speaking in front of people. So we bring, new, we bring visitors in and we say, gosh, we got five visitors today. Would everybody please stand up and tell us a little bit about yourself? Guess what's going to happen to those visitors? They ain't coming back <laughs> unless they got no place else to go because that's not what people need, right? So part of it, we got to readjust what we think is best for people. But the other thing is people will come in and... Um, maybe not feel very comfortable, um, feel like it's not for them, and we need to be okay with that. Can you still bring them? Yeah, bring them, because we don't do very good evangelism in the world today. The world as a whole doesn't do very good evangelism like they did in the early church, in the Middle Ages, all those times. So this is probably the only shot they're going to get, so you got to bring them. But the other thing is um, they can't be offended, and neither can you, when certain parts of the service come along and they're not welcomed. Sometimes people take that very well. I had a college kid from Wheaton College who wanted to meet with me because he wanted to come to the Eucharist. And I explained the whole thing. It's very simple. We don't want to kill you, 1 Corinthians 11. Some people are eating and drinking this to their own death. And we don't want to make you a liar. Don't come to this altar and go to another altar. He completely got it. And he said, you know what? 
I believe it's the body and the blood, but I go to a Baptist church at home and I'm going back there and they don't believe, therefore I shouldn't come to the Eucharist. I was so grateful that he called and came in and talked because what often happens is people just come, they don't know the statement in the bulletin or they don't read it or they don't care, they come to the Eucharist and afterwards they say, we're visiting from the Baptist church and then I'm in a tough spot because what do I say? You probably shouldn't come to the Eucharist. And they say, this is for everybody, (laughs) right? It's not for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I often say to people, and I've, only, I've had very few bad reactions. I often say to people, if I don't know them, are you baptized? And their instant reaction is, I, what, he's saying I can't come up here unless I'm baptized? No, I want to bless you properly. If you've been baptized, I want to, baptize you, I want to bless you in your baptism. If not, I want to bless you toward your baptism. So these are all things you should know so that you can tell your unbelieving or Baptist friends I say Baptist because it's easiest to come off the tongue. could be Methodist, could be whatever. So you can tell your friends, this may look a little different. Um, don't feel uncomfortable. And we love you anyways, and we hope you can come back and join us another time. Yeah. What is she? If she's confirmed, she, might, she must be something sort of sacramental. Okay. Although here's, here's what I found. If you're gentle and kind, and the worst thing you can do is say, this is what my church believes, now don't ask any more questions. And I, I know you wouldn't do that, but there are people that do do that. And they call me then and say, my family doesn't speak to me, what should I do? And I say, you shouldn't have said that. You know, like one guy called and said, my mother-in-law is all upset. And I said, well, why did you say that to her? I mean, now you won't do that, but some people do. This is what my church believes, and they're very dogmatic about it. If you can just sort of gently say, let's talk about this. Let's take a little time. Let's, it doesn't mean never. It just means right now we need to work through all these things. People are pretty receptive when you're kind. Make sense? Yeah. Well, that's a different deal. When you have when you have young kids, that or I say young kids, young adults, that's a different deal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 I gotcha. Yeah. I, I the question is, what's the best book to give to somebody in the Bible to say, sort of read this if you're an unbeliever? And that's a live question. Lots of people ask that. I think the worst thing you can do is say, start with Genesis and read the Bible. Because they'll get to some genealogy and what happens. This is a piece of, you know, yeah, right. Because I do the same thing. Uh, honestly, I often say to people, um, I often say read the Gospel of John. John is not the same as the other Gospels. That's why it's not called synoptic. It's not, synoptic just means seen together. Synoptic, you know. Um, but I think it's very easy to understand. And it has some key themes that relate very well to the world today. Love, truth honesty, and also um, the the sacramental references are not overt, so they don't sort of turn people off. You don't have the go out and make disciples and baptize them, and you also don't have Jesus in the upper room giving out the Eucharist. You have a man came to him at night and wanted to know how he could be part of the kingdom. That's, That's a live question. People want those sorts of things, truth, honesty, new life. John speaks that way. So I think the Gospel of John is the best place to start. Yeah, I understand. I understand. So you can say to him, hey, read the Gospel of John. That might be a good starting point. Yes, Mary? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, Matthew is uh, too difficult. Mark is too fast. Luke is too Greek. And John is just right. I'm just saying, if you were, you're not a pagan, so you don't understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, just go to verse 12. This is great. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use... What's that? Yeah, I don't want to use paper and ink, although I think it's something else, too. One, he doesn't want to use the paper and the ink, so he's, you know, a green evangelist. But what else? What do you know about what do you know about putting stuff on paper? It might come back to you. I always say to people, if you don't want it to be circulated, don't write it in an email. I'm even nervous about phone calls. We had somebody once who tried to record our phone conversations. Yeah, stuff that goes on in the church. I'm even nervous about that, but I especially say to people, don't put it in writing unless you want everybody in the world to see it, right? Partly, I think that's John's nervousness because who's he writing against? The Gnostics, the heretics, the Marcionites. And he realizes if he puts this all on paper, every last thing he has to say about them, it'll be around Jerusalem before the end of the day, and his life will then be threatened. 
So partly he's saying, hey, let's talk about this face-to-face. -face. Also, if he does have any problem with the congregation, which obviously he does because some are not following the truth, Matthew 18 says, don't write it, go face-to-face. -face. John knows all of this. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. <laughs> Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face -face so that our joy may be complete, may be filled. The children of your elect sister greet you. And so then the elect sister is the other church and all those members. So he's with a group of people. He's with the other members. And he says, I've got to write a sermon at this congregation. He writes it and he says, by the way, everyone here greets you. Amen. Okay? You're welcome. Now let me, yes, Betty? There, yep. Under Marcion, very far right? Yes. That says Marcion. Marcion was a heretic. You don't want to be like Marcion. Marcion's Harris, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. The followers of Marcion were called Marcionites. <laughs> okay? Oh, okay? Anything with an ite or an ism is not good. Oh, okay. All right? Oh. So it says, true man. true man, born of man, but not of God. Oh, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> so the heresy was Jesus was born of Mary, but he was not born of God, which, now boil that down, he was true man, but he wasn't true God, exactly. Could be, yeah, exactly, or some, some man was, yeah. Probably Joseph, but uh, it certainly wasn't the Father in heaven. And that's why he says, the question at the beginning was, how come it doesn't mention the Spirit? It doesn't mention the Spirit because he's trying to defend Christianity against Marcionism. So he says, this is Jesus Christ, born of the Father in heaven. Okay? Uh, let's look at the calendar real quick and just see. Uh, those of you who have school kids, when does school get out? You all look sad. What's going on over there? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so the 27th is Memorial Day. June 3rd is the last day of school, so you guys will all be scrambling to get your kids. Let's go the 13th and the 20th, and then we'll be done for the summer. So that'll be good. We'll spend two weeks. We'll do 3rd John. We'll wrap up 2nd John, do 3rd John, and then we'll be done. Okay? Sound okay? All right. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we'll see you next week.